This is a moral call right here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Hi, I'm Benjamin Day. I'm Stephanie Nakajima. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. And Stephanie, this time I'm going to be the one to exclude someone. I'm going to exclude all the farmer bros out there. And I'm going to warn you, we have, a, we have a guest today. We're going to introduce the guest in a moment, but I need to get a little rant off my chest. Is that okay? <laughs> I'm <laughs> Am I allowed yours. to go off here at the beginning of the podcast? <laughs> all right. So um, everyone in my, all the men in my family have gout. Um, for those who don't know, gout, the uh, disease of kings, is, uh, it's like these uric acid, these crystals like form in your joints and they just uh, become extremely painful often in your toes or ankles or knees. It's like super, super painful, but it's also hard to tell apart from just like getting a sprain or something. Um, so all the men in my family have it and now I have it too. I had a gout uh, inflammation, just like my left ankle went and my left toe started swelling up and hurting and then my right ankle went right after it and I was like, oh shit. No, a new so, coronavirus symptom. So I called my, uh, I had an e-health uh, like video talk with uh, my registered nurse and they're like, well, we're going to give you this uh, prescription for this drug called Colchicine, which is like the miracle cure for gout. And he's like, if it works, then you clearly have gout. And if it doesn't work, then you probably sprained your, your feet. Um, so I took the culture scene and it went away like immediately within a day and a half. So it was definitely gout. But then I talked to my rheumatologist about addressing this long term. He said, all right, we're going to prescribe you culture scene. So you like have it um, just when you have an outbreak, you can kind of use it as needed. But he said, uh, occasionally you'll go to the pharmacy and the culture scene will cost you like hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars. And he's like, if that happens, call me again and we'll find a workaround for this. And then he told me that culture scene is actually thousands of years old. Um, I looked it up. Uh, there's documents from 1500 BC, ancient Egyptian hieroglyph, like the earliest medical texts we have mentioned culture scene. It just comes from this flower. Um, and it was used to treat gout going back for centuries and centuries. It's like one of the earliest human medications. But only in recent times did the FBA allowed it to be patented for exclusive rights. In 2009, um, it was being distributed as a generic drug for decades in the United States. Um, it was like 10 cents a pill. And then in 2009, FDA gave exclusive rights to this URL pharmacy, and they jacked up the price to $5 a pill. I don't know how much of an increase it is from 10 cents to $5, but it's, it's like a thousands of percent increase. And they drove all of the generic manufacturers out of the market. And so they, they can now charge whatever they want. And it's been hard for generics to like get back in. So this is something that like Aristotle and Christ might have taken <laughs> for their medication. And now we cannot access it because of fucking pharma bros uh, buying up, you know, getting basically monopoly rights to these uh years and years old uh, medication. So apologies for that rant, but I was just so pissed off that I might have trouble, you know, using this, uh, one of the most ancient medications ever from a flower 
Um, I feel like I should just grow the flower in my backyard and chew on it if I need it or something. <laughs> that may not be recommended by my doctor. But rant over. I apologize for wow. that. Uh, Stephanie, do you want to introduce our, our guest? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I think also that it's just so uh, unfortunate that structures built to protect us, like, you know, the FDA, uh, are actually end yeah. up just being vehicles for corporations to take advantage of us in various <laughs> ways. So... Um, on that bombshell, let's, uh, let me introduce our guest, who is, again, Mark Dudzik, the National Coordinator of the Labor Campaign for Single Pair. So he was on, if you remember, last episode to talk about what Medicare for All would look like for union workers and, and all workers and how the labor movement is or you know isn't involved in some cases in Medicare for All organizing. And we had such a great conversation and we just had so many leftover questions. So we're bringing him on again. Mark, thank you so much uh, for being here. Um, we're going to do a deep dive on, on the recent history of uh, the Medicare for All social movement from, oh man, Mark wants to go way back, um, all the way from the 40s to uh, the present day. So, so looking forward to talking with you today. Well, it's, it's great to be back, Ben and Stephanie, and Ben, sorry about that gout, but mm -hmm. I'm glad you were experiencing the... Uh, the massive uh, innovation that our system sparks in the, in the uh, <laughs> pharmaceutical industry. This is just yeah. exactly as it was intended to do. The uh, market competition sparking mm -hmm. new innovative methods of uh, yeah. <laughs> ripping off uh, the consumer when they need need it the most. So uh, yeah. welcome, welcome to healthcare in America 2020. <laughs> So, so uh, you know, I've, yeah, I'm sure that price hike is going to pay for the R and D. So yeah, right, yeah, for how, for how to find scene. another how to of find another Egyptians, uh, right. family yeah. remedy that they can now patent. Maybe uh, can right. chamomile tea will be next, and uh, you know, we'll yeah. figure out the next way to to, to oh, put geez. something back on on the patent wagon. So uh, <laughs> innovation is such a wonderful thing. Uh, so. When you um, asked me to come back on and talk about it in a more historic way, um, you know, I really wanted to start by pointing out that in the U.S., um, unlike every other industrialized country, we have this crazy system where we link many, if not most, people's health care to employment. You know, they get health insurance from their employment. And this was really this kind of weird accident of history that happened in the U.S. Um, and that we're kind of burdened with today. Um, and, you know, it kind of started actually during World War II when um, industries were competing for workers. Uh, it was a, you know, there was a labor shortage and 10, 12 million people were in the army, whatever. Um, and... Um, they were restricted on raising wages. There were wage and price freezes. And so they began to offer some supplemental benefits to, to recruit and to hold people. And some of that was uh, medical benefits. But meanwhile, um, you know, in 1944, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt ran for re-election, he ran on the basis of a new economic bill of rights for all Americans and sort of promised that in the years following World War II, and based on all of the sacrifices and pain that we had experienced moving through the Depression and the World War, that there'd be a new um, economic social contract with the American people, 
uh, following World War II. And central to that contract was to finally make health care a right, a public good in the U.S. and provide health care to all mm-hmm. through some kind of a national health insurance system. Uh, and the labor movement was squarely behind that and were really, you know, ready to begin to mobilize as the war ended. Um, and in fact, in 1946, um, um, the uh, there was congressional legislation to establish a national health care system. Um, three generation back Dingle, John Dingle the first, um, was a principal sponsor of that legislation in the House. Um, um, and it was defeated in a, this sort of move to the right um, at the end of World War II when, uh, when capital and the con- uh, conservative forces really began to mobilize to push back on labor and a number of other gains. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a year later, um, they passed this uh, uh, anti-labor bill that's called the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947, which really sort of began began a process of a long kind of retreat uh, for the American labor movement. It really took away a lot of the tools that we needed to organize and to bargain effectively. And it was coupled with a, a rise in anti-communism which uh, was directed at the more progressive and militant sections of the U.S. labor movement. So uh, the promise that Roosevelt made to the American people was never really fulfilled. Um, Mm -hmm. And labor, you know, was really forced by the current of events to kind of uh, do a second best option and begin to negotiate health care benefits as a benefit rather than to fight to make them a right for everybody in America and help create this sort of post-war healthcare system. Then other non-union employers followed suit to uh, either as an incentive to uh, keep unions out by matching the kind of benefits that union benefits uh, provided or uh, to recruit workers. And this whole elaborate system developed uh, and played out over decades um, and then really took off on steroids with the rise of neoliberalism uh, in the late 1970s, when everything was sort of marketized and turned into uh, uh, commodities and, you know, 1,500-year-old drugs were suddenly became patented and uh, <laughs> marketed at, uh, you know, 1,000% markups. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, all throughout that period, until the 1990s, the official policy of the uh, AFL-CIO and almost every union in the U.S., was to still uh, embrace, support, and fight for uh, national health care legislation. Legislation that, in the different different variations over the decades, but, you know, would basically be, uh, you know, a Medicare for all type system with a single payer, and single standard of care, universal cradle-to-grave coverage as a matter of right, health care as a public good. So that was the official policy of... Uh, of the institutional labor movement right up into the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And we, I should interge- uh, interject here, too. During that period in the 40s where Truman, you know, ran on a national health plan and and won and they had large Democrats had large majorities in the House and the Senate. The thing that really blocked it from going through at that point was Southern Democrats who were worried about the impact on segregation in the medical system. Yeah. So we had this system where where structural racism um, particularly in the South, kind of blocked a congressional solution. 
And then it sounds like what you're saying is the labor movement's only recourse at that point was to build up this massive workplace-based insurance system, which was good for workers at the time, but has become kind of a burden for us now. So, yeah. And by so, the way, racism played out in that defeat of the labor movement in the 1940s, mm-hmm. too. It was this mm-hmm. massive mobilization against attempts by the labor movement to organize a multiracial work, workers' unions in the South that mm-hmm. really was the first uh, defeat that we experienced uh, after the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act. Mm-hmm. And they used all of the tools that they gained in the Taft-Hartley Act to attack la- labor's uh, mm-hmm. move to the South in the 1940s. Um, wow. And they used racism to divide workers against each other. Right. And we still have a, a labor movement that struggles in the South. So another thing that casts a long shadow. So even though this is without question, uh, the podcast dedicated to the history nerds out there, we're going <laughs> to skip over a few generations and decades here, because I think we really want to start from kind of the modern era. We want to talk about the, the, the Clinton healthcare reform effort that failed, then talk about the Affordable Care Act and then bring us up to present day. Um, so, Mark, can you remind folks... Um, what, how did the Clinton health reform effort come about? Uh, what was actually in that bill? And tell us a little bit about labor's role in that. Yeah, so um, there was a huge health care crisis in the late 80s, early 90s that was driving a lot of, uh, a lot of the national politics. Um, that, you know, it was the beginning of the you know, loss of benefits by large numbers of people, the price explosions, uh, access to health care. So there was this huge crisis. Uh, a number of insurgent candidates were elected to Congress and the Senate in that period of time, promising health care reform. And Clinton uh, ran for president. Uh, you remember, this is 12, we had 12 years of Ronald Reagan and George Bush I. This was a very kind of a bleak period for progressive reforms in the U.S. And suddenly, you know, we had this opportunity to elect a a Democrat with a Democratic uh, uh, House and a Democratic Senate. Um, and, you know, change was in the air. Uh, and Clinton ran on health care. He talked about making health care accessible to every American. Um, and it was a central part of his, uh, uh, his campaign. Um, and he assigned uh, Hillary Clinton to be the, the chair of the health care task force that was going to... Um, uh, make recommendations uh, for health care reform. Uh, but he, Clinton was also considered something called a new Democrat. Right. Uh, and a new Democrat, unlike, I guess, the old Democrats, although it's open to discussion, uh, you know, believed in this idea that, you know, in order to govern, you basically had to appropriate um um, a big chunk of the sort of Republican market-oriented programs that you had to uh, not alienate the the uh, uh, the big economic players um, at the at the table. You had to find some way to accommodate them um, whenever you did anything. And so um, Clinton very cl- quickly, both Bill and Hillary ruled out a single-payer Medicare for All style uh, solution to this health care crisis. Uh, they appointed uh, a guy named Ira Magaziner. Boy, it's all coming back to me now, this <laughs> nightmare, uh, you know, who began to, you know, pull people together and hold hearings and uh, 
um, do a number of, of things uh, where they were going to basically uh, construct a, a brand new health plan that was going to give us all the benefits that a national health plan would give us, single payer system would give us without any of the, you know, uh, conflict with uh, the insurance industry and the medical industrial complex. Um, and, um, you know, it was a classic example of bargaining against yourself where mm -hmm. you think, well, you know, they're not going to like it if we take away, you know, fully eliminate private insurance. So we're not, we'll just regulate private insurance and, you know, make sure that they uh, don't rip people off and require that they, uh, they offer certain packages and, you know, we can't really deal with big pharma. So we'll let them know that we're not going to mess with their mandate. And so, you know, they, they presented a package that they thought was acceptable to the industry. And the industry, like any shop steward could have told them, just saw that as a sign of weakness, and, you know, to, you know, ask for more and decided to uh, uh, rip it apart and uh, kill it completely. Um, uh, which is exactly what began to happen. So that plan, you know, embraced these sort of market-based solutions, um, required um, employers to provide a certain level of health coverage um, as a condition, provided market subsidies for um, people who didn't have access to employment-based insurance, expanded uh, some of the other uh, insurance insurance mechanisms, um, regulated the business, um, you know, very much like the Affordable Care Act did. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that was the that was the Clinton health care plan. And it was really sort of dead, dead on arrival. And they, they wasted mm -hmm. um, a couple of years of their administration um, in this down and out fight uh, mm -hmm. and, and ended up accomplishing nothing. And my understanding is that there was uh, an intense debate within the labor movement and within the AFL-CIO, which is the you know National Federation of Unions, about how to relate to this health care bill and whether to advocate for a true you know universal health care plan. Um, I mean, today we use the term Medicare for all, but it's had different descriptions over the years. There was a period where we called it single-payer health care. I think back then it was probably just called the National Health Program. Um, so can you kind of describe to us how that debate within labor uh, played out and who won, which side won? Yeah, well, we lost. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, as I said, you know, the policy of the, the official policy of the U.S. labor movement going into 1992 was to support what we called national health insurance. Um, and, you know, uh, there was a bill at the time called Wellstone McDermott, after two great healthcare advocates in the Senate and the House, um, that uh, had been officially endorsed by the AFL-CIO. Um, but the Clinton administration, you know, really lobbied the labor movement to support their health care plan and basically implied that um, support of that plan was... Uh, would condition what the administration did in other areas that were really important to the labor movement, particularly um, legislation that we uh, were fighting for at the time that would have prevented the permanent replacement of striking workers. We have this weird 
loophole in our labor law, which says that uh, thanks to a Supreme Court decision in uh, many years ago that says that it's illegal to fire someone for going out on strike, but it's legal to permanently replace them. And so you tell me if you got permanently replaced, <laughs> what the difference is. But anyways, uh, we were trying to fix that. Um, in the 1990s and we you know a lot of uh labor leaders felt that we had to go along with the clinton health care plan in order to win progress on things like that so there was a huge debate in the afl cio executive council uh, and they, there was uh, uh the health care subcommittee um um debated it it was deadlocked for a, uh, about three months and then ultimately, one union changed their vote, and by a vote of uh, uh, five to four, uh, the AFL-CIO uh, they recommended wow. they, the AFL-CIO uh, uh, endorse the Clinton Health Care Plan and put the Wellstone McDermott Plan on the back table, um, and that was uh, you know a historic moment of of uh, retreat for the American labor movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like the negotiations around this sort of weakened labor's commitment at the time uh, for Medicare for all, and then the bill didn't even pass, right? Yeah, it was. It just it was uh, massively attacked by both uh, the Republicans and by the medical industrial complex. They ran these these uh, attack ads that, you know, focused on, you know, that whole issue of loss aversion, you know, where you, they figured out that people fear losing what they have more than uh, hope, the hope that of what they could gain. And, uh, uh, you know, they really played this out and, uh, you know, forced them to back off on that and, you know, basically put an end to any kind of... Uh, other progressive initiatives coming out of the Clinton administration. I've always felt that, you know, healthcare is often at the ed, the, the uh, tip of the wedge in terms of, you know, a series of progressive policies that would benefit mm -hmm. working people. Um, and I think our opponents know that too, that, you know, if you, you know, once you make healthcare a right, that, you know, working people aren't going to stop at that. They're going to demand other things like paid leave and, um, um, better protections on a job and all kinds of other benefits that people in uh, many other industrialized com countries expect as a matter of right. And so similar dynamics were playing out uh, in the 1990s. So after the defeat of that bill, uh, what happened to labor's relationship with you know, national health insurance? So we basically wandered in the wilderness for a lot of years. Um, and the other thing that happened around the same time and was somewhat connected to the, you know, what was going on in Congress was the rise of, um, of HMOs and other managed care uh, insurance products. Um, and so was, uh, when they were forced upon working people and workers almost always resisted them because... They restricted your choice and access and everything else. Uh, the, for about five or six years after they were sort of became pretty uh, general, uh, healthcare costs kind of stabilized for a few years, and so there weren't that sort of catastrophic um, contract fights over healthcare costs and, and families, 
you know, getting these massive increases in their insurance bills and things like that. Uh, so there was sort of a, a period of it was a it wasn't the number one issue that a lot of working people were facing. Um, and, you know, we also went into this gigantic fight with the Clinton administration over uh, uh, the support of the North American Free Trade Agreement, which sort of opened up this whole area era of globalization um, um, and offshoring of uh, industrial jobs. Uh, so um, all of that was kind of mixed up uh, in that period of time. A number of unions, you know, continued to support uh, Medicare for All. Um, my my union, uh, the Oil Chemical and Atomic Workers, was among them. Um, and, you know, we continued to support that. Um, we didn't put the resources into it um, that we put into some of these other fights. But, uh, you know, it, uh, it was one of the elements that led to an attempt in the late 1990s to establish a, um, um, a worker-based independent labor party in the United States. A number of unions kind of uh, threw down on that idea and tried to explore that idea for about five years into the late from the late 1990s into the early 2000s. Um, and, you know, a lot of that had to do with the failure of the healthcare fight and some of the other uh, uh, pro-corporate policies that the Clinton administration embraced coming out of that. Um, and it also led to this uh, the only contested election in the history of the AFL-CIO, 1995, where we elected new leadership to the AFL-CIO. Uh, so there was actually a brief kind of revival of the labor movement um, as a progressive change agent um, um, uh, into the early 2000s coming out of those fights. So I think we, we want to jump ahead to the Affordable Care Act fight. But in doing so, we are jumping over a bunch of important developments, uh, namely the massive growth of the Medicare for All movement itself. Um, I mean, I know Physicians for National Health Program was kind of created um, in the late 1980s. A lot of our local Medicare for All grassroots groups around the country date to the early 90s and late 90s. Um, so really, the social movement starts building around this time. And uh, John Conyers first introduces the Medic Improved and Expanded Medicare for All Act in 2003, Three. I think. Yeah. Yeah, 2003. Um, but this brings us up to the Affordable Care Act fight. Um, so, and I feel a little bit guilty because uh, there was a Massachusetts health reform law passed previous to this that kind of acted as a template. And I feel like a lot of this stuff started in our home state. So I apologize to everyone out there, all the other 49 states. Um, basically, what happened here was Mitt Romney was governor um, and we had a Democratic state legislature and they came up with a compromise bill that included like some Democratic ish ideas of expanding subsidies, uh, basically expanding Medicaid, subsidizing care for more people, which is a good thing. Um, and then they allowed Romney's camp to add a bunch of conservative right wing ideas, which is the individual mandate, basically penalizing people if they don't purchase health insurance, trying to push more people into individual markets. So they're buying it on their own instead of getting it through their workplace or through a large group plan. Um, and that kind of became the template then for the Affordable Care Act, um, and which became a fully democratic plan. And this really marks another sort of shift in the Democratic Party's position nationally. 
Um, but this was also the period when this organization, Healthcare for America Now, was launched. Um, Mark, do you want to talk a little bit about just, you know, um, just to start with um, the uh, how the Affordable Care Act started to come, come about, the beginning of this story? Yeah, they spelled your name too, didn't they? It's Healthcare Now, and all of a sudden we had Healthcare for America Now. I don't know where they it's got very, it from. It's brilliant messaging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, well, um, as you said, you know, the, the healthcare, you know, this temporary uh, truce sort of collapsed uh, by the late 1990s. Healthcare costs were exploding again, and crisis was was playing out all over the place. Um, and, uh, you know, we elected this guy, Obama, again, who ran on health care mm-hmm. um, after these eight years of this, you know, what looks today like a, almost a, a utopian era. But, you know, this horrifically incompetent <laughs> right wing pro corporate guy named George W. Bush, who, uh, um, you know, had no vision at all about how to make healthcare more accessible to Americans, among many other things. So we elected this guy, Obama, um, and he promised, you know, a full kind of open debate around healthcare, although, you know, he never, the closest he came to supporting Medicare for all on the campaign trail was to say that um, um, if we were to start from scratch, he would start with a Medicare for all Canadian style system. But unfortunately we can't do that now. And which by, and by the way, I was um, actually at a, uh, a union legislative conference in Chicago when he was running for Senate. This was the first unit union that endorsed his primary run uh, when he was running for U S Senate. And at that conference, he was a huge supporter of Medicare for all because that. Unite Here district that had hosted it uh, was just Unite at the time, Midwest Unite, uh, was a big Medicare for All supporter. But anyways, uh, by the time he got to the White House, it was clear that he wasn't going to be supportive of Medicare for All. Um, And uh, we, this is when we launched Labor Campaign for Single Payer, actually, was uh, uh, late 2008. We had our founding convention. Uh, right before Obama's inauguration in 2009. Mm. And we launched it at that point in time because we wanted to, we knew these debates were going to explode, uh, and we wanted to fight that there be a voice uh, for Medicare for All coming from within the labor movement uh, in the course of these debates. And we got a number of national unions to, um, to uh, join the campaign and participate in its launch. Um, First among them, of course, was uh, uh, the predecessor union to National Nurses United, which at the time was California Nurses, National Nurses Organizing Committee, uh, you know, which was just putting all kinds of uh, resources and organizing capacity into this fight. Mass Nurses was another founding union up in in Massachusetts. Uh, So there's a number of national and regional unions that came together around this issue uh, beginning right uh, just prior to the inauguration of President Obama in uh, 2009. And we had our first uh, conference. We began to develop a work plan to move labor to kind of turn this gigantic 
freighter around back towards uh, support for national health care um, and at the same time try to inject our voice into the debates over the Affordable Care Act. Um, I had the honor of getting arrested. Uh, my arrest was ordered by Senator Bacchus in the U.S. Senate. Uh, we stood up and... In That's a Senate. badge of honor. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Uh, you know, I've been, you know then arrested in much less honorable circumstances than that. (laughs) uh, uh, You know, uh, we demanded that they put health care on the table in the discussions and the debates in the House um, and the Senate. Um, Bacchus had refused to call a single advocate of Medicare for all in the in the Senate hearings. Um, um, There were several Congress people uh, led by uh, Congressman Conyers and Congressman Kucinich um, advocating for Medicare for all and for a debate on Medicare for all in the in the House. Um, they constructed, you know, the plan that we're living with today, um, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, they started out with a much more robust, as they would call it, public option that was, you know, created the dream that someday through this gradualistic public option, we could end up with Medicare for all. But you know, by the time they were done bargaining against themselves, uh, we didn't even have that uh, that to show for uh, for for the bill. Um, the Senate spent a year dickering around trying to get one Republican to say that they would vote uh, for the Affordable Care Act, um, and can you know the Republicans played them like a fiddle, and they kept throwing pieces of the bill away. Say now will you join? Now will you join? No, no, you got to throw us some more. Throw us some more, and then they viciously uh, opposed it and tried to kill it from the the very beginning. Uh, so uh, you know that was the the fight. Um, in the middle of that, um, the AFL CIO had a convention in two thousand and nine, the fall of two thousand and nine, um, where we uh, worked with a number of unions to put in uh, resolutions. Uh, endorsing uh, Medicare for all, uh, single payer. Um, and we collected uh, resolutions from over 100 central labor councils and 10 or 12 national unions. And this is almost unprecedented in the AFL-CIO. That, well, they tend to operate by consensus, and they were really forced to deal with this. Uh, and we were also sort of lucky that... Um, the resolution on health care was coming up right before the newly elected President Obama was going to address the AFL-CIO convention. And they were really nervous that Medicare for All supporters would try to embarrass them uh, and disrupt that uh, that speech. Uh, and in fact, we at one point said that we were going to hold a press conference um, when Obama came into the uh, into the House. So we ended up winning... Uh, for the first time uh, uh, since the 1990s, a resolution that said that uh, the goal of the labor movement is to move towards a single-payer style universal health care system. And we, you know, we took that as a, the beginning of a mandate to move in that direction. Yeah, and it's. I think that the inception of the labor campaign at this point is um, is so important especially to contrast with uh, labor's involvement in helping launch uh, health care for America now. Um, 
which was sort of had a different agenda coming in a little bit from the center or the center right to sort of take the, the wind out of the sails of the single payer movement, uh, which had been dominating organizing uh, around the Affordable Care Act early on. Um, can you tell us a little bit about labor's role in um, Healthcare for America Now, how it came about? Yeah, so Healthcare for America Now was the organization that was set up to pass the Affordable Care Act. Um, and the Obama administration, which, by the way, had hired some really respected kind of labor leaders to be, you know, White House staffers and things like that, you know, basically asked the labor movement to help uh, uh, lead this fight for the Affordable Care Act and to, to engage with it. Um, and um, um, Healthcare for America now ended up being this uh, group that was financed and run by um, a few very large uh, unions um, in the U.S., the Service Employees and AFSCME and uh, I think the AFT and the NEA and a few others, uh, who joined with some uh, uh, foundation money and some uh, other private sources of income, and they raised over $20 million um, to pass, organize and pass uh, the, the Affordable Care Act. And a lot of that money and a lot of, a lot of the sort of grassroots uh, organizing effort for that uh, came from uh, sections of the labor movement at the behest of the Obama administration. And again, there's a sort of implied um, rewards and punishments for doing this. It wasn't so much that labor felt that they couldn't live with Medicare for All versus the Affordable Care Act as it was they wanted the Obama administration to succeed because if they succeeded, they felt that the rest of the labor agenda, you know, in terms of things like raising the minimum wage and when regaining the rights to organize and all of these other issues would then succeed. Uh, and Obama, has, in his infinite wisdom, had sort of decided to start with the Affordable Care Act. And it was like, well, before we get to anything else, we've got to get through this. And we got to make this succeed because if we lose here, we're going to lose everything. Uh, and, you know, we did. We lost everything. So uh, even in winning what we won, we lost uh, the ability to do anything else. And we ended up having, you know, then to defend this, this very mild piece of uh, reform legislation uh, for, you know, we continue to defend it. Um, you know, it's under assault again in the Supreme Court. So, And one piece of the Affordable Care Act that's, and the Affordable Care Act fight that is now kind of forgotten, but was, loomed large at the time, especially for labor, was the Cadillac tax, the so-called Cadillac tax, which was this tax on employer benefits, uh, employer health care plans that where their premiums rose above a certain number. Um, and it was clear that if this was implemented, almost everyone's health benefits would be affected um, after a couple of years. And it would just encourage employers even more so to show, to stop covering their workers and to shift uh, costs onto workers. Um, I remember there was this bizarre moment in the middle of the Affordable Care Act fight where Ted Kennedy, who had been leading the fight in the Senate, Senate died. Um, and there was a fight, there was a special election for his seat. Um, and Scott Brown, the Republican, won his seat running against the Affordable Care Act, and he actually won a majority of union votes 
in Massachusetts. And it was primarily around because of the Cadillac tax elements, uh, which really turned off a lot of workers, especially unionized workers from this bill. Um, and, you know, they had campaigned against McCain uh, because McCain had a scheme to tax employer health benefits. Um, and then it kind of appeared within this Affordable Care Act. Um, but now the, I think the, the Cadillac tax has been delayed and delayed and delayed and probably killed to, get, to death. But it felt like a big part of the, the fight at the moment. But Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. This is, you know, how they, they shoot themselves in the foot. I mean, this was a, mm-hmm. you know, a, a tax on working class health care benefits, um, you know, when they weren't taxing anybody else. And uh, it was a real affront because, in fact, a lot of unions campaigned for Obama um, using the rhetoric that McCain wanted to tax our benefits. And now they had to go to their members and say, well, yeah, well, now Obama's going to tax our benefits. And, you know, there was a real pushback (laughs) on that. Um, And um, it's just, you know, it's this idea, the, the thing that drove that is this idea that you have to have skin in the game in order to affect any real change. Because if you look at healthcare as an economy, as a commodity rather than as a public good, then you apply all these kind of market incentives on it. You know, so if it costs you more, you'll use less of it. Uh, and if you have to tax your benefits, pay a tax on your benefits, you'll accept crappier benefits that aren't taxed. And so it's mm-hmm. all of these skin in the game incentives that you know, go against the very reason why you fight for, uh, for health care. Well, that brings us up to our present or just recently past decade of the 2010s. And I have to tell you, I have kind of a picture of, you know, it, it's clear the Democratic Party and labor stood for single payer national health care for many, many decades. Sometime around the Clinton era, it shifted towards, you know, an employer mandate and then subsidies for everyone else. The Affordable Care Act was kind of a further retreat. There was no employer mandate. It was a individual mandate. We're going to shift this responsibility onto the shoulders of individuals, um, and it's going to be very market-based with some subsidies. Um, and I'm trying to think what exactly marks the 2010s <laughs> where we had the Hillary Clinton campaign. We now have the Biden campaign. Um, I mean, what does the Democratic Party centrist, you know, the kind of the dominant leadership of the Democratic Party stand for in healthcare now? Because it, it feels to me like in each of these eras, the Democratic Party shifts first and they kind of drag the labor movement with them because the labor movement is um, worried about losing everything else that they can potentially win through the Democratic Party if they hold leadership. And I worry now about where we're being dragged, you know, uh, Mark, what's your sense of like, what is this era we're in right now? Well, look, first, there's two sides to this, right? So first, there's the, um, you know, the Democratic, neoliberal Democratic policy, which has been pretty consistent since the 1990s, you know, and it's, you know, it's like, well, Frederick Douglass, what did he say, those who want progress without struggle it's like wanting the ocean without the roar of its waves and uh you know the the idea that somehow you can without disrupting the massive accumulated economic power that's at the center of our for-profit healthcare system without disrupting that power somehow you can achieve um you know universal health care um for every American. And so that that's sort of the 
illusion that's driven the Democratic Party for, geez, they're almost 30 years now. And so that's been pretty consistent. You know, it's like, let's find a way we can do this without pissing off anybody, you know, who's got a stake in the system. And, you know, they just get played, uh, you know, consistently on that level. So that's that's that dynamic. And that's, you know, unfortunately, I have to say that that looks like where we're going to be again in the election, the national election uh, in 2020. I think there might be other opportunities and congressional races and down ballot races, but it looks like Biden will run on that kind of a program. You know, let's strengthen the Affordable Care Act. Let's maybe move down the eligibility age for Medicare down to 60 and, you know, play a few games here and there. But that's basically where we're going to continue uh, going into the 2020 election. But on the other hand, you know, we're faced with these, with reality on the ground that is unchangeable. And, you know, there's a, somebody said, some economists said that if something can't go on forever, it won't go on forever. And we're at that point where it won't go on forever. We just cannot, this uh, system of private uh, health care insurance is unsustainable. And we're at the crisis inflection point. Um, you know, we're at a point now where uh, the cost for health care for a family of four um, exceeds the uh, average wage in low-wage occupations like retailing and food processing. And it's in a few years will exceed the average, you know, industrial wage in the U.S., um, you know, so healthcare, you know, an employer is not going to pay more for healthcare than they're paying for wages. It's just a, you know, a logical absurdity. Uh, so, you know, the system is in this crisis mode. We've got tens of millions of people, you know, losing their jobs um, and facing the worst public health crisis um, in a century. Um, and, you know, all of these things are just compelling and driving change at all levels, um, you know, inside the labor movement, in the broader um, movements of uh, people who are fighting for change, uh, the racial disparities that are coming out in the system and the inability of our current system to effectively address those type of disparities. You know, so um, we are, you know, also in this period where there's uh, incredible potential for change. You know, last year, for the first time since 1992, unions representing a majority of organized workers in the U.S. endorsed uh, uh, H.R. 1384, the Medicare for All Act of 2019. Um, now, there's been a lot of backtracking since then, um, and a lot of that has to do with the who's heading up the national political slate. Um, but, um, you know, that was a a uh, watershed moment for the work that we do within the labor movement. Um, and, you know, now it's our job to hold their feet to the fire on the positions that they say that they endorse. And that changes, you know, that's a better job to have than to get them to first embrace those positions. So, you know, we I think the 2010s have also been driven by the crisis in healthcare, a period of real progress. We have, I think, pretty much un breakable majorities of the American people uh, now supporting a Medicare for all style solution. You know, it's there's some softness about what that really means to a lot of people. But you saw in the primaries, even with a lot of pushback from uh, the medical industrial complex and anti-Medicare for all candidates, people tended to hold to that position. So 
you know, we are in this moment of opportunity as well as in a moment where we have yet to really have substantially moved the Democratic Party um, as a national entity. Well, as we're about to elect um, for the Democratic nomination, a candidate who uh, is not for Medicare for all, I'm so happy to hear that you're hopeful, Mark. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am too. <laughs> I'm I'm real hopeful. I mean, look, I've been doing this as you know for a long time now. I, you know, I just see that you know people really they really deeply understand these issues now. It's they've internalized these issues, uh, and not everybody, of course, but you know, there's a critical mass that has evolved uh, in this country on this issue, and it's going to be hard to shake that. And people are, are they are not going to forget the lessons and the pain that they felt during this period of crisis. Uh, right now. And, uh, you know, this is a, you know, if, if we're smart, and we're strategic, and we keep our eyes on the prize, you know, this, this is our moment, and we can, yeah. we can move this. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. And I totally see that as well on the grassroots side that people are, you know, sort of speaking out about um, their lack of access to health care, uh, with more uh, indignity and more um, awareness that what's happening to them is wrong and that of course they should have health insurance during a pandemic. And, um, and I think that people are just becoming more aware of their rights. And I, I totally agree that they're, they're going to remember for sure. So, um, so thank you so much, Mark, uh, for coming on. Um, we're going to have to set up a, a labor part three <laughs> sometime in the future, just to check mm. back with you. Well, I'm always glad to come on. Fantastic. You take care of that gout, brother Ben. Get those flowers. Oh, I will. I'm going to start growing right now. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. We'll talk to you next time.